0: Well, if uh, you've uh, come in, uh, we're delighted uh, to have those of you who are guests, family, and uh, friends uh, with us, as well as those who are online. Um, If you're here and uh, you're exploring Christianity or you know you're not a Christian but wonder uh, what it means to follow Christ, we are in the discipleship section of the Gospel of Mark. And this morning's sermon should illuminate further what it means to follow him. If you would, would you stand with us? We're reading from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, and pray with me. Holy Father, we ask that your word, you would send it forth with power and freshness, that it might accomplish the purposes for uh, which you have spoken it in each of our lives. but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may take your seats. Well, there was during the Second World War a, uh, in England, a British pastor, an Anglican, whose home was destroyed in the bombing raid by the Germans. And everything he owned was destroyed in the fire and uh, he literally, all he had left was the clothes on his back. He took a day uh, with a friend to recover, and then he went into the nearest town of any size to a clothing store with a long list of items. All the items that a man of his station in English society would be expected to have on every varied occasion. The clerk listened patiently And when he'd finished, she said, I don't have most of what you want, and I cannot get it. Don't you realize that there is a war on? The war effort, of course, was making demands on everybody in England and called for sacrifices. Sacrifices that the pastor apparently did not understand. He simply didn't understand that his personal desires or even what he thought of as his needs would have to take second place. Now, in our text, Jesus is on uh, the move. He's seeking time uh, to be alone with his disciples. And for the second time, he tells them that he's going uh, to be betrayed, mistreated, die, and raised again from the dead. And he wants them to see the connection uh, between uh, what he's about to do in the giving of his life and what it means to follow Christ. And though it may strike you as the teaching is somewhat disjointed, it's actually all united around what it means to follow uh, Christ. Discipleship is difficult and demands sacrifices because there was a war on. Jesus uh, uses a word picture to capture this. It's there at the end of the text. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, you, you can just hear reading it that the word salt is uh, repeated. And while there's some complexity in the passage, and the word salt is used figuratively to describe many different spiritual truths in the Bible... We will get our bearings correct if we uh, look in the Old Testament uh, to a command given in the book of Leviticus about how salt was to be used in the offerings. We read there, you shall season all your grain offerings uh, with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. See, salt was to be offered with every burnt offering. And the grain offering would be consumed by the fire. And so the lives of Christians who follow a crucified uh, Lord are, in fact, whole burnt offerings. The entirety of our life is to be offered up to Christ. It's a total and irrevocable uh, offering. It costs everything for Jesus to redeem us, and it will cost us no less. If anyone, Jesus said, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For ever would save his life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life uh, for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is very much what Paul's getting at in the letter to the Romans when he talks about offering our lives as living sacrifices But the Christian life is also like salt in another way. Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness. Well, salt, sodium chloride, is a uh, a stable, uh, uh, pure uh, compound, and it can't lose its saltiness. Uh, But in Palestine, salt was often uh, drawn from places like the Dead Sea, and so it was a mix of minerals, and it was possible to leach the salt out of that uh, mixture and leave only lime, and thus it would be worthless. Have salt in yourselves means to live a distinctive life. And that's what uh, Jesus is saying here. He's describing what it means to follow him, to have a life that is distinctive from the world, uh, that reflects reality that there's a war on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness for the redemption of humankind. Now, distinctive doesn't mean weird. And I think that you could find in any period of time in the history of church, there have been groups of Christians who have embraced uh, weirdness in order to express what they thought was distinctive about Christianity. In the early church, there were some desert fathers, and they chose to live their lives in the most austere way possible. Some actually sat on the top of poles and exposed themselves to the elements to demonstrate that their sin nature, their flesh, was in fact being subdued and submissive uh, to God. That's not at all what the Bible's teaching, it's not what Jesus intends. Jesus was both in the world and not of it. He lived a very ordinary uh, life up until the time of his public ministry. And even after uh, he begins his public ministry, um, he participates in weddings and dinner parties. Uh, He he attends the synagogue. He relates to any and every kind of person, including those who are very, very far uh, from God. And yet he doesn't embrace Uh, the world's values and way of thinking. I want to look at this text and show the three principal distinctive things about a disciple. A disciple has distinctive ambitions, a distinctive generosity, and orders their life with a distinctive kind of discipline. First, the ambition of a distinctive life. As the disciples arrive in uh, Capernaum, Jesus asks them, what were you arguing about uh, on the road? And they are silent. They're embarrassed because they recognize there is a discrepancy uh, between what they've been talking about and what Jesus has told them about himself. Their silence is a wordless confession. They've been thinking about the future And they are confident that they are going to be very important people when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Now, Jesus is completely aware of what they've been talking about. And it's not hard to imagine that Peter, James, and John, having come down from the mountain with Jesus and had many other moments alone with Jesus, are convinced that one of them is the greatest. And, of course, the other nine have a different perspective on the matter. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all. And then he acts out a parable. He takes a little child and embraces him in the center of the group. And he says, whoever receives one such child receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not only me, but the one who sent me. Now, Jesus is identifying with this child, but it's not the humility or innocence of this child, it is rather the fact that children in his day had no social standing, it's their unimportance. Children uh, weren't doted on the way they are, they weren't thought of as special and precious in the ancient world. Um, uh, Because child uh, mortality was very high, and many children didn't survive to the third or fourth year of their lives, they often didn't receive names till after that time uh, had passed. And Jesus is doing this and speaking this uh, way, uh, because he's addressing our ambitions. Um, not all ambition for greatness is wrong, and Jesus wants to direct them to understand the distinctive ambition of being His uh, follower the follower of the one who is the servant of the Lord. Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted or the privileged. Rather, greatness is available uh, to every uh, believer in the common and simple task of serving others. Uh, Now, this is completely foreign uh, to the disciples because social rank the privileges that come with it, the knowledge of who's at the top of the pecking order and who's uh, below you, um, well, it was a key uh, for public life in Palestine, whether in the synagogue or outside of the synagogue. It was essential that you knew your place and you uh, honored those who were your betters. If you've ever seen Downton Abbey or some other uh, portrayal of 19th century England, you have a pretty good picture of what the social class structure there looked like, and it was something similar in Palestine. Now, the disciples are confident that this same kind of social principle is going to be in place in Jesus' new kingdom, and Jesus is telling them that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. If you want to be first. If you want to lead, then you must become last and servant of all. Church leaders should be known for their service. The only people that should be called into office in the church are those that have demonstrated by their lives that they are serving others. In Christ's kingdom, all leadership is servant leadership. And this is true not just in the church, but everywhere a Christian serves, whether it's in the marketplace or the public square or the academy, Christians should be noted for their service for others. It doesn't mean there's no authority, that there's no power, uh, but a power and authority are always used for the good of others. And not to make a name for yourself, not to enrich yourself, uh, not somehow to become the center of attention. Well, how can you tell if you've got this right? Well, you are increasingly freed from the need to compare yourself to others. You stop being concerned about your reputation, about how people uh, respond to you, whether they're deferential, whether they're respectful or not. Another way to tell, and perhaps uh, this runs even deeper, is how it is that you judge the worth of people. I mean, people who are worth your time, your uh, love. You see, it can't be for the disciple defined in cultural terms. The beautiful people the people who have fame or influence or are accomplished or who can benefit you. Welcoming unimportant people is actually the same as welcoming Jesus, the Master, and welcoming Jesus is actually the same as welcoming uh, God. That's what Jesus is picturing for them as he puts his arms around this little uh, child. This is really very much in line with what Jesus teaches in Matthew 25, when he says, when we care for the widow and the uh, orphan, the, the prisoner, the poor, we are actually ministering to him. And so the question for us is this, do we value those that the world doesn't? People who can't give us anything, people who lack status, power, influence the poor, the uneducated, and the unsophisticated? Will we embrace them? Will we show them hospitality, even if they can't contribute to the life of the church? Why would we do that? Sounds very counterintuitive. Well, it's because it actually benefits us. And here's how. In the Holy Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not uh, frozen in their relationship with one another. It's not static. They are eternally welcoming uh, each other, entering into communion with each other, delighting in one another's excellencies, perfections, and uh, wonders. They're always offering. And enjoying hospitality uh, with one another and an eternal dance. This is what theologians mean by parichloresis. And this is a rich and wonderful truth. And we enter into it most deeply when we welcome and show hospitality and give ourselves in service uh, to those that have nothing to offer us. That's what we get to enjoy in radical hospitality. Now, later, John says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not following us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. The second distinctive in the life of a disciple is a generosity of spirit, or a generosity in their associations. You see, the disciples rebuke the man, because he wasn't following them. In other words, he's not one of them. The man's relationship to Jesus is unimportant to them. It was that he wasn't a part of their group. And there's really an irony here, because if you can remember uh, last uh, week, the disciples weren't able just a few days earlier to cast out a demon, and now they're trying to stop someone who is. You see, they want a monopoly. They want a monopoly on ministry. And so Jesus speaks to them, don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, that's Jesus' way of saying, perk up your ears. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, Jesus is urging upon them a graciousness and a generosity as they form their opinions of others who call on the name of Jesus. There's a war on the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. Our true adversary is Satan, and we need allies in this war. Now, there's a balancing truth that appears in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And they might seem like they're kind of contradictory uh, to you, but actually they're just different ways of saying the same thing. It is not possible to be neutral uh, toward Jesus. Either you're following him, you're for him, or you're against him. Um, And you can't ultimately uh, do something in his name that's good and not end up worshiping him. And so the disciples need to be generous with those uh, who aren't a part of their group, who are actually different uh, than them. And churches really need to hear this. We need to hear this because churches are often think a lot like Burger King, McDonald's, and Wendy's out on Route 1. They see themselves as uh, competitors and not uh, allies. And further, tribalism and a party spirit and even party strife are common in the body of Christ, not just between groups, but even uh, within uh, a body of uh, Christians J.C. Ryle was a 19th century pastor, and he comments so appropriately. He says, Members of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it's done by their own party and denomination. They are so narrow-minded that they cannot conceive the possibility of working on any other pattern but that which they follow. At its worst, this intolerance has resulted in Christians persecuting Christians, because, well, they aren't a part of our group, they don't agree with us about some secondary matter, or the way they conduct church life, or their uh, methods of ministry, and therefore they're compromised, or even opposed to Christ. You know, sadly, uh, the Reformed Christians have not been immune uh, from this, Uh, The Swiss reformers uh, persecuted uh, their Anabaptist uh, brothers, even putting many of them uh, to death. It's one of the many dark spots in the life of the church. You see, Jesus is attacking our pride here. Pride is quick to exclude people. Pride is quick to judge other people's actions. Pride says we are the most faithful, we are the best, We're the most pleasing because of the way we do things. And, you know, it's so easy for us to overlook the fact that Scripture teaches that God actually uh, delights in diversity. He's created uh, the church in the image of the human body with all its various parts. And so he loves uh, to give and grant a diversity of gifts, And ministers, this is not only true within a particular local congregation, but it's uh, true broadly throughout all of Christendom. God celebrates diversity, you can see it in nature all around you. One butterfly species would have been probably enough for me, but he thought 33,000 would make the world a better place. And while every church should reach conclusions about what Scripture teaches, and work out its theology. And every church should adopt ministry methods that it believes best reflects that and serves it well. At the same time, every church should applaud what other churches are doing in the name of Christ and even be open to learning what they can from them. Jason Myers comments on this last verse that I read Jesus will receive and reward what anyone does in his name. Whether it's as spectacular as freeing someone from the demonic, or as seemingly trivial as pouring out a cup of water. And oh, how much we need to hear this as a church. How much the church needs to hear this in our day. Because when the church is filled, with a party spirit. It's not the name of Jesus that's being lifted up high. It's our name that we're lifting up. During the first great awakening, uh, George Whitfield, who was a uh, great evangelist, uh, saw that the Methodist movement uh, was being divided. There were some who were followers of Wesley and others who claimed loyalty to Whitfield. And Whitfield decided that he would step down from his uh, position of leadership in the movement. His followers urged him uh, not to do that, and even after he'd done it, uh, to take up the mantle of leadership once uh, again. Um, they said, "Your name might be forgotten." And uh, he replied by saying, "My name? Let the name of Whitfield perish only if the name of Christ be glorified. Disciples have a distinctive ambition. They display a distinctive kind of generosity. Both of these things are so unlike the way people ordinarily uh, behave. And they display a very distinctive kind of discipline in their lives. The passage I've read ends with very strong, even repulsive images about a millstone on a neck and a person being cast into the sea, about the mutilation of the body, and then the valley of Gehenna, which was the burning garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. These are ugly, even violent uh, images, the cutting off of hands and feet and the tearing out of eyes. It's shocking uh, to hear these images. And Jesus, through these images, is not seeking to be cruel or manipulative. He's seeking to draw attention uh, to the reality of the consequences of resisting uh, uh, God, the reality of hell. These images are hyperbole. Jesus is speaking in an exaggerated way. He does not intend anyone to take these words literally. In fact, the early church at the Council of Nicaea, in keeping with the commands of the Old Testament, outlawed uh, just such behavior. It said, not only is it contrary to Scripture, but it's possible to be minus hands and feet and eyes, and even neutered, and still be lustful, materialistic, and proud. But here's the thing, in saying that these are hyperbole, they're exaggerations. You're in danger of watering down, perhaps, what Jesus himself said, and taking the edge off. That's the reason Jesus is trying uh, to get under our skin with this. Jesus is calling for a renunciation of possessions, family, and even life itself, if it stands in the way of the life that's found only in the kingdom of God. These are words that are hard to hear. And if they weren't on the lips of Jesus, it would be a lot easier to reject them. But it is Jesus who speaks the most about hell in scripture. It is Jesus himself in order to free us from hell, undergoes hell on the cross. When he uses the picture of the garbage heap, he describes the burning of the fire, as well as decaying food, Uh, With maggots. To highlight this, that your entrance into the kingdom of God is worth more than the most essential of things. It's more important than even the things that seem most indispensable to us. And this is the offense of the gospel. And Jesus says these uh, words with authority about the things that we supremely uh, value, like our eyes and our hands and our uh, feet should they stand in the way of eternal life. As important as hands and feet and eyes are to us, and whatever else claims our ultimate allegiance, they are not life. It is only in the kingdom of God that life can be found. The kingdom of God is life, and nothing should be allowed to hinder you from entering into that kingdom. The choice is literally God's kingdom or the fire that never goes out. And so, brothers and sisters, we must not fool ourselves. We, we must not uh, fool, allow others to fool themselves either. Jesus warns those Uh, who would cause one of the little ones who believe in him to stumble. He means to fall away, to stop trusting in him. And there is a terrible judgment coming on those who mislead people, whose faith is not mature and deep, whether they be children or whether they be young adults or even older people who yet their faith has not become strong and solid. And then Jesus shifts to warning us of endangering ourselves. And so what stands between you and life? Is it your sexual practices? Is it the way you want to think about sexuality? Is it your personal pleasure and comfort? Uh, Is it that you insist on having your way? You actually really don't want anyone telling you what to do, including God. Perhaps it is the good life, the middle class life, the upper class life. Perhaps it's friends and families that uh, being accepted by them is actually more important to you than entering into the kingdom of God. That your friendships with people who ridicule uh, Christianity or scripture or the orthodox practices of uh, the church matters more to you than aligning yourself with Christ. Don't put this off. Undisciplined disciples risk the fire of Gehenna. There is a war on. And sacrifices must be made. The life that Jesus offers, the life that is found in his kingdom, is worth any price to obtain. And to think otherwise is to risk total ruin. Pray with me. Father, these uh, words tell us that discipleship is difficult and it demands sacrifices. And Father, we live in a time where many say in the church and we want to believe that in following you, we will experience complete personal fulfillment and satisfaction. And that in following you, all our personal felt needs will be met. O oh, Lord, free us from these things, from their attraction on us. Let us never forget there is a war on and sacrifices must be made. It's in Christ's name we pray.